Well, good morning. Um, be um, opening your Bibles to Psalm 97. Psalm 97. It truly is a blessing for me to be here today after the last couple of weeks. We, Andre and I and the family, are super appreciative of your prayers and kind gestures as we battled through COVID, but thankfully we are on the other side. Um, so thank you for all the prayers. Psalm 97, please stand for the reading of God's word if you are able. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high, are, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanksgiving is a wonderful holiday, I think, anyways. The traditions of great food and spending time with family are, are wonderful things that I think our culture should always take time out to celebrate. Um, these, are, these are good things from the Lord and to be reminded of. And I think Thanksgiving is particularly suited for Christians as we have more than anybody things to be thankful for. Whether it is counting the blessings the, the Lord has blessed us with um, the past year or pondering our salvation which occurs apart from anything in us, but solely by God's grace. Or we can give thanks for the community of saints that God has placed us in, this, this particular local church, which is a blessing to us. And the friends and community we have here, and the, and the preaching, the faithful preaching we get to sit under week after week, it really is a truly wonderful thing to be a Christian. And so hopefully this past week you've been encouraged by praising God and, and thanking Him for the glories of being in the faith. But one thing I have been particularly thankful for this year, and something I probably hadn't thought on enough as, as I should in the past, is being thankful for the kingship of our Lord. Our God is King, and He is the King of everything. Jesus is described as the, the king of kings. And I think that is something to be thankful for. Something, as the psalm says here, to rejoice over. And in Psalm 97 this morning, we get a picture of our king. And specifically, we, we see a portrait of our king's coming kingdom. So I want us to meditate and, and expound this psalm so that we can add to the list of things, the many things we can rejoice over and thank God for in our lives as Christians. Now before we dive into to Psalm 97, I want to provide just a, a brief word of context, or relatively brief, and make a comment on the composition of the Psalter in general. So I think if you're like me, you could have approached um, 
the Psalter, which is just a fancy name for the, the book of Psalms. Um, but I think many people approach the book by reading and analyzing each particular psalm in isolation from the book as a whole. And of course, this is not a fruitless endeavor because when we do this, we are encountering and interacting with the Word of God, which is always a good thing to do. But I would suggest reading the psalms this way, it, it limits our full comprehension of what the meaning of the, of, a, of the psalms are. And that is because it's largely believed, and I think rightly, that the Psalter is designed in such a way that the psalms are, are placed and grouped together by different categories and themes. In other words, the editor of the book of Psalms has compiled these 150 songs and prayers of Israel to communicate meaning in the order and compilation of the psalms. Therefore, and this, this is really important for our understanding of the psalms, they should be read in the, in the literary context of the Psalter, of the book of Psalms at large. So one of the ways we will find the meaning of a text of a particular psalm is to understand where and why the editor placed that specific psalm where he did in the book at large. Now, this idea, I don't think it should shock us. It shouldn't be too foreign to us. As one popular example of this, is widely known as the Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms 120 through 134. These are Psalms categorized and <coughs> these are Psalms categorized, put together by the editor of the book that were songs sung by the nation of Israel as they ascended the road to Jerusalem to participate in religious festivals. So it's beyond the scope of this message to present the, the overall structure of the book and the overall story or message the editor is presenting in the book of Psalms. But what I want us to see with Psalm 97 is that it's not sitting in isolation. Psalm 97 sits near the end of a group of ten psalms, which are widely recognized as royal psalms. Each of these psalms deals with the general theme or motif of Yahweh as king and celebrate the Lord's kingship. And more specifically, Psalms 96, 97, and 98 each proclaim of God's coming as the entire world's king or the king of all creation, not just the king of Israel. So Psalm 96 and 98 deal mainly with the, the amazing joy and jubilation that will come to the world when the Lord returns to res restore and usher in his everlasting kingdom. While Psalm 97 is more unique, in that while it definitely has elements of joy and rejoicing, which we will see, this psalm also details the awesome, frightening, aspects of the Lord's kingship for those who oppose him. I think it would be helpful for us up front to understand that, that I interpret, and I think you should interpret Psalm 97, primarily eschatologically, meaning I view the fulfillment of the coming true of this psalm will occur at the end of times when the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and might. And I hope this becomes obvious and convincing as we work through the psalm. I think what we have here is an, an unnamed psalmist is probably writing of, of past deliverances of Israel and pointing to times of God's presence entering into the creation in the history of Israel. But it's ultimately pointing to what the prophets referred to as the day of the Lord. So think, or you can even turn there, think of, of Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 31, which reads, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great awesome day of the Lord come. I take these verses on the day of the Lord to be referring to events that will occur 
one day in the future at the, at the return, the, the second coming of Christ. And what is important for us is I think the psalmist in our psalm today is using, is using similar language and similar literary techniques to point the readers of this psalm forward to the ultimate final day of the Lord. Which again, I, I, I hope you become convinced of this as well as we work through these verses. So as we work through these verses, I want us to think of this psalm, this psalm under three main points, three main ideas or, or three headings, all dealing with the king, Yahweh, and his coming kingship. So point number one is a, a revelation of the king. And we'll see that in verses 1 through 5. Point number 2 is a response to the king, which we'll find in verses 6 through 9. Our third point will be rejoicing as we wait for the king, which we'll find in verses 10 through 12. So a revelation of the king, a response to the king, and rejoicing as we wait for the king. So first, a revelation of the king. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 again. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So the psalm opens with the declaration that the Lord reigns. In Hebrew, it, it literally opens with Yahweh is king. Yahweh is king, which is an awesome declaration. The psalmist then says, let the earth rejoice. Not just Israel, but, but the, the entire earth. This is explained further with the next line of, let the many coastlands be glad. This is a, a common phrase that, that in, in Hebrew that denotes the, the far-off distance lands or the, the furthest known uh, individuals or where individuals live, meaning everybody on the entire earth should be glad should be full of joy, even those at the ends of the earth. Why? Because the Lord is king, and the Lord reigns. The point is the Lord, Yahweh, is king over everything, and he is king over everyone. He, he rules, he reigns, and his kingship is ultimately good for the earth because as we see, I want you to look down at, at the end of verse 2, Yahweh's throne, which is, is a term that denotes um, God's sovereign rule, his throne has a foundation of righteousness and justice. Justice here refers to God's right judgments, his right decisions. It has connotations of, of punishment and, and condemnation. He judges righteousness rightly. And this word is also used to refer to God's law, which we're going to come back to in a second. The second word to describe the, the foundation, the root of God's kingship is righteousness, which means right rule or, or right order of things. So the idea the psalmist is getting at is that the world should rejoice because the Lord is king. And the reign of his kingdom is, is perfect righteousness and perfect judgment or justice. And here is where I think we get the first indication that the psalmist is, is pointing forward to a future kingdom reign of God. Because right now, this hasn't fully occurred. God's perfect righteousness and justice, his perfect law, that are the foundation of his throne, of his sovereign rule, they don't fully characterize our world in the here and now. 
You see, the psalmist is both proclaiming God's present rule over all creation, over all the earth, but I do think he's pointing towards a day where the king will reign in his kingdom perfectly, and his righteousness and justice, his law will will permeate everything. And this kingdom reign, I submit to you, has not occurred yet. And in verses 2 through 5, the psalmist describes in, in poetic and I think pretty, pretty literary brilliance a, a theophany. And a theophany is just a, a theological term meaning God visibly manifesting himself in creation. So notice in verse 2, he writes, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. That's Yahweh. And, and righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Does this remind you? Does this bring to mind anywhere else in the Old Testament? Sinai, someone said. <laughs> uh, I think, yes, I think the psalmist is intentionally pointing the reader back to Exodus, and specifically the, the account of Moses meeting the Lord at Mount Sinai. We, we read of this account in Deuteronomy 4.11, which states, You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. To see, you see how there's, there seems to be a lingu- linguistic and, and thematic patterns the psalmist is connecting here with, with this theophany account in Israel's history at Mount Sinai. Notice also, also here in verse 2, as I previous, previously said, I think the, the words righteousness and justice, which make up the foundation of the Lord's throne, also has strong connotation of God's law, which the clearest, most comprehensive account we have of God's law in the Old Testament is found at this same account in Exodus, in Israel's history, where the Lord gives his people the Decalogue, the the Ten Commandments, his holy law. And it is by this law that Israel knows, knows what is just and what is right in the sight of God. I think the point the psalmist is making is that the kingship of Yahweh is an awesome reality. Just like when the Lord met his people in Exodus was an awesome reality. It is an otherworldly kingdom that, that when this king condescends into his creation, it strikes fear, it strikes awe in his creatures with this with this immense darkness and clouds surrounding the presence of the Lord. In verse 3, we get, we get further remarks of this revelation of the king and his coming. Notice the psalmist states, fire will go before Yahweh. Fire will go before the king. And it will burn up his adversaries all around. Fire is is sometimes used in the Old Testament to demonstrate the wrath of God. I think that's what it's indicating here. And that term all around simply means all of them, all of God's adversaries everywhere. There There will not be one that opposes the Lord that will survive the fire of the Lord. I think the image the psalmist is painting is that the fire goes out from the darkness and clouds that that surround the throne of the Lord, almost as as a weapon against his enemies. And honestly, I think this is terrifying. It's a frightening passage. At the Lord's coming, when the king arrives, he will utterly annihilate every single one of his adversaries. And I think this is more evidence that the psalmist is pointing to a future day of the Lord that has not yet occurred. But this is, I think we should feel, this is startling language. 
Maybe you've seen a clip on the news of a wildfire ravaging some place, maybe in California over recent years. You know, you see massive flames with clouds of smoke that, that go seemingly as high as the sky. They're extremely unsettling and ominous pictures. And if you pay attention to the news, what is, what is the, the only advice or command the local fire, fire officials give those in the path of the wildfire? The only option is for them to evacuate. There is nothing those residents can do, literally nothing in their power, to stop the rage of the flames that will consume their, their property and their life if they don't flee. So their only option is to run. It's as if it's an all-consuming fire. And the pictures of the places that eventually do get ravaged by these flames, maybe you can remember one, they, they just show absolute devastation. I think it, it must be a truly traumatic experience. And I think the picture the psalmist is painting in verse 3 is that when the king comes to enact his rule, Flames of unquenchable fire will go before him to burn up his adversaries everywhere. And make no mistake, friends, there will be nowhere to evacuate. There will be nowhere to run from the Lord. The Lord will accomplish his purposes. He will burn up those who oppose him much worse than, than the aftermath of a devastating wildfire. Again, this is a, a terrifying verse for those who are presently opposed to God, those who, who aren't presently trusting in Christ. I'm reminded of, of Hebrews 12, verses 28 through 29, which states, let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is not one to be trifled with. He is a, a consuming fire. In verse 4, the, the psalmist proclaims um, intense lightning that, that lights up the entire world in the king's presence. I think in this verse there could also have, have a connotation that the Lord's coming will reveal the wicked works of the world. That word light up in the text, it can also mean illuminate or illumine. So the psalmist could be saying the Lord will illumine, illuminate the sin, expose the, the sin, expose the wickedness, which then causes the earth to tremble in the presence of their sin. Regardless of you by that interpretation, the point is that at the coming of the king, the entire earth will, will tremble at his might and at his astonishing power. Down in verse 5, it, it's the last verse that describes this, this theophany, this revelation of the coming king. The psalmist writes, The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The image here, I think, is such that, that creation itself cannot handle the presence of the Lord. It literally, creation will just, will just turn into liquid. Solids will just melt. The Hebrew idea of mountains is, is the geological object of stability or immov immovability. So mountains are the structures that, that image complete fortitude. And the psalmist writes, in the presence of the king, in the presence of Yahweh, these immovable mountains melt away like a burning candle. So it's another powerful, striking image. Not even the, the strongest, most stable earthly structure can withstand being in the presence of the Almighty. And what I want us to notice in these verses here, 2 through 5, is that this description the psalmist is describing of the Lord reigning over his creation is very similar to other encounters or visions humans have of the Lord. Think of um, Isaiah 6 where 
where Isaiah proclaims, woe is me in the presence of the Lord. He can't even stand being in the presence of the Almighty. Or Ezekiel and his marvelous vision of the Lord in Ezekiel 1. The point is, being in the presence of the Lord is an awesome thing. And by awesome, I mean that in the traditional meaning of the word, of, a, of an overwhelming feeling of reverence and fear. And friends, I think our response to this passage of this revelation of the coming king is to honestly have a proper fear of this king and to marvel at the Lord, be in awe of our God. Brothers and sisters, the, the, the glory of the Lord is astonishing. Is it not? I struggle to even... Writing this, I struggled to even find words to describe the, the magnitude and might of our God as he's described in Scripture. So I can't imagine, I literally just can't even imagine what it will be like to stand in his presence of this king. But I do think we must, as his people, as the, authors, as the author of Hebrews tells us, to worship the Lord in reverence and awe. I think we should be careful to be too casual in offering our Lord worship, for he is the almighty king. Point number two. Point number two, a, a response to the king. Response to the king. We see the response here in verses six through nine. I think verse six acts as a as a sort of transition sentence in the body of the psalm. The psalmist writes, the, the heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. The point, as we've, as we've seen, as we have seen, is that the revelation of God's glory, as described in verses 2 through 5, is so overwhelming, so glorious, that the heavens, all of creation, declare Yahweh's righteousness. Notice there that all peoples will see the Lord's glory. Or another way to say this is that at the Lord's coming, all people on the earth will recognize the glory of the Lord. This again points, I think, to the, to the end of days, where when Christ returns, all will see and proclaim that he is Lord. So the point, I think the, the meaning of verse 6, is to proclaim that when the king comes, everybody, all the nations, will respond, will, will see his glory, and everyone will know that he is the king, the God of everything. But on that day, it will not be rejoicing for everyone. Look at Verse 7 with me, the psalmist writes, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. So I think this is a, a, a universal condemnation of everyone who worships idols. And I take the idea of images here to be the same thing as worshiping idols. The response then, the psalmist is saying, the response to the king when he comes for those who trust in something other than him will be shame, will be utter humiliation. And something I think we need to consider is that idol worship is not reserved only for those who worship little statues in the ancient Near East or, or outside the modern West today. Idols are those things that we give our full devotion to in our life. We are all prone to idol worship. Money, pleasure, safety, comfort. These are the, the idols that I think are prevalent in our cultural moment. And the psalmist is saying here, anyone that puts their allegiance in something or someone other than Yahweh will be put to shame when his kingdom comes. 
Notice the author says these, these idols are worthless. Worshiping anything other than the one true God is utterly hopeless. It's pointless. It's a pointless, worthless endeavor. Whether that is submitting to the, to the idols of money or personal fulfillment or one that I think is growing in, in popularity today and in Christian circles, the, the idol of acceptance from the unbelieving world. Listen, all of these, the psalmist would say, are completely worth, worthless. And I think they're worthless because they will not deliver on what they promise. They just won't. Living your life primarily to attain wealth will fail you when you can't take your possessions with you when you die. Living for the approval of the unbelieving world will always ultimately fail because the unbelieving world is fundamentally opposed to God and God's way. It is a worthless pursuit. And more strongly, when the Lord comes again, he will put everyone who worships or gives their lives to these things, who gives their lives to these things at the expense of the Lord, he will put them to shame. The idea of being put to shame, I think, means a, a, a humiliating judgment. Yahweh will, will shame those who worship something other than him. And to be honest, I did a lot of study on this word and this concept, and I have no idea really what it means. I'm not entirely sure what this shaming is going to entail. But I can promise you this. It will be utterly intolerable and worse than we can imagine to be shamed by the living God. And if you are here and you're not trusting and submitting your life to the king and you don't trust in Jesus as Lord, I would consider hearing all of this, hearing these words as an immense blessing because you still have time while you have breath, you still have time to, to repent and turn from trusting in lesser things, in idols. Friend, you do not have to be put to shame when the Lord comes. You can be made right with God. You can be made right with the King today by turning your life to Christ, by confessing Him as Lord, by putting your, your trust and faith in Him. So I urge you, if you are here and don't know the Lord, to trust in him today. Because as this text makes clear, the offer of salvation will not last forever. The psalmist in, in verse 8 details how the coming of the king will not be terrible for everyone. He states, Zion and the, and the daughter of Judah will rejoice, will be glad, They'll, they'll literally be full of joy when Yahweh comes and ushers in his kingdom. I think these terms, Zion and, and daughters of Judah, are simply terms to, de to describe God's covenant people. And so the fulfillment of these verses are not ultimately physical Zion or Judah or, or physical Israel, but God's new covenant people those who, who belong to Christ, those who have been regenerated by the Spirit to have faith in the Son of God. We call those people Christians. The fulfillment of these verses, I think, are to Christians. And what is striking about this verse is the reason for God's people to have joy and to rejoice is because of the judgments of the Lord. In other words, God's covenant people Christians will rejoice at the king's final judgment. James Montgomery Boyce helpfully points out that we get a pretty explicit glimpse at this rejoicing in Revelation 19, which providentially we, we read earlier in the service. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. You can turn there if you'd like. It reads, After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. 
Why? For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So what we see here is rejoicing in heaven, rejoicing from the saints at God's judgment of the wicked. And this is exactly what is being described, I think, in in verse 8 of Psalm 97. When the Lord comes back, those that are in Christ will be full of joy, singing songs of eternal praise because of God's judgment of those who oppose him. And I think this, this, this sounds like, at least to my ears, this sounds like a difficult, hard truth. Because we probably, right now, have loved one or friends that are presently opposing the Lord. And thinking about praising their destruction seems unsettling. And I, I totally understand that impulse. But I think this makes complete sense if we take the, the personal nature out of it, because I think we all desire justice to be served. There have been a couple of recent court cases in our country that, that has garnered a lot of media attention because I think humans desire right and just judgment. And we all deep down desire evildoers to pay for their injustice, for their wickedness. And that is exactly what the Lord is going to do when he comes again evildoers will be punished for their wickedness. And those who are saved by faith in Christ will rejoice at God's perfect and just rule and his perfect judgment. I think think this is a, a glorious thought and a great hope we have as we as we await the destruction of evil and the evil one. Verse 9 here serves, I think, as a summary statement of verses 2 through 8, that the Lord is the Most High. He is exalted over everything and everyone on the earth. He is, put simply, the mighty king. Which leads to our last point, point three, rejoicing as we wait for the king. Rejoicing as we wait for the king. So it's pretty commonly understood that that verse 10 has drastic, fairly drastic linguistic changes. And what many scholars believe is happening is that the the psalmist starting in verse 10 begins to address his his current context, his his current audience. So verses 1 through 9 tell of a a revelation of the king entering into his creation and, and the response to that king who enters into his creation, by the peoples in the world. And verses 10 through 12, I think the psalmist turns to address his audience, or he he applies this message to his hearers. It's as if the psalmist knows that, that this future kingdom that he's written about has not come. And right, we live in a world characterized and filled not by God's perfect judgments and his righteousness but by wickedness and evil. So what do we do? Right? The, 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 the question presented to us is, what do we do as we wait for the king to come, as we wait for our king to come? Well, the psalmist gives God's people two commands. Notice here in verse 10, hate evil. In verse 12, rejoice in the Lord. Hate evil and rejoice in the Lord. In verse 10, we see that the psalmist say, those who love the Lord hate evil. The psalmist gives a a command, an imperative to those who love the Lord. Um, This idea of of loving the Lord is tied to affection for the Lord, but also full allegiance to the Lord, or those who have a willing compliance to the Lord's commands. That is what, I think that's what the psalmist means by love of the Lord. It is a a fully devotional love, not simply just an affectionate, emotional love. 
So those with full allegiance with the Lord, the command is what? We must hate evil. I think this is one of the simplest commands in all of Scripture, but maybe one of the hardest to follow. Hating evil means that we have a, a disgust, a disgust in our mouth is the idea, a, a flat-out rejection of sin and wickedness. You might like to think of it as a, a zero-tolerance policy with sin, with evil. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans 12, 9. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Christians must abhor, must hate evil. This means those who love the Lord cannot become cozy with sin, cannot align their life to condone sin, can't joyfully participate in sin, in fact, we must do the opposite. We must, Scripture would call us, hate. We must reject. We must flee sin. We must flee evil. And obviously this is difficult in a world that's full of sin and, and having a sin nature in each of us that all of us have to battle. But Christian, I think this has massive implications for our life and for what we do. Hating, hating evil... Hating sin should inform who we associate with, what we watch on TV, what we allow to come out of our mouths, what beliefs we allow to shape our worldview, what we do when no one else is watching. So let me ask you just pointedly, what is characterizing your life? By God's grace, are, are, are you rejecting evil? Are you rejecting ideas, belief, practices that against, stand against God's holy law? Are you normally, generally pained, disgusted by evil and wickedness? If so, praise the Lord. That is a wonderful work of God in your life. But maybe, are you allowing yourself to entertain ideas that are contrary to God's word? Are you watching things that, that promote evil? Are you, are you speaking in a way that is contrary to God's righteous standard? Are you allowing yourself to give into sinful anger and lash out at your spouse or your kids? Listen, I don't think, in fact, I, I know nobody is perfect at this, this side of heaven. It is a struggle. It is a battle. But I think the call for us who are, are, are embracing sin, who are not hating evil, even on a small scale that, that maybe seems harmless to us, I think the call for us is to repent and devote ourselves fully to the Lord and his perfect ways, which necessarily entails, according to the psalmist, hating what the Lord hates, hating evil, hating sin, which means, I think for us, means taking seriously even what appears to be the smallest slip, thus the smallest infractions against our God's perfect standard. I think we must be resolute, we must be diligent in avoiding and, and just outright rejecting the evil that is all around us in the world. The rest of verse 10, I think, has some glorious truth that those who love the Lord, those, those who are devoted to the king, will have their lives preserved and delivered from the hand of the wicked. That word saints in verse 10 just means God's faithful ones, those who have given their lives to the Lord in faith and live fully devoted to him. So I think that is you, Christian. If you are a Christian, that is you by definition, someone that is devoted to to the Lord, who's given their life to the king. And the promise of this verse for you is that the Lord will preserve you and deliver you from all the wickedness you face in this world. Again, I think this, this has end times implications in mind, that at the Lord's coming, we will be protected 
we will be delivered into an eternal, everlasting kingdom of God. That is a precious truth that should, I think, spur us on in endurance and, and hope as we face the many trials and tribulations that we face in this fallen world. Our trials won't last forever. The Lord will deliver you. The Lord will preserve you and your faith through this present evil age. So I think we, should, we need to hold fast. We need to hold fast to him, hold fast to the Lord and to his promises. Verse 11 is, difficult, I think, pretty difficult to understand. Uh, I think the psalmist is using poetic language here, but I, do, I think it's still theologically beautiful. The psalmist writes, the, the light, which I think signifies bliss or, or gladness, which corresponds with the other half of verse 11, which is joy. So light is sown, or if you think of the idea, it's an agricultural metaphor, like, like seed scattered. Light is like seed scattered for the righteous, for those who belong to the Lord. So the idea is that joy and, and gladness is scattered along our, our path, our, our earthly pilgrimage as we wait for the coming of our king. It's, it's beautiful imagery. And it's another glorious truth. The, the righteous or those who are made righteous by their faith in Christ will have joy in this life as we wait for the king. We will have joy and gladness in this life as light, joy, happiness is scattered, it is sown for us. So listen, though we live in a world tainted by evil, we don't live joyless lives, which is incredible. We can all attest to this, I think. Thanksgiving as a holiday, as I mentioned before, is a great reminder that our life is full of joy and light and gladness at the blessings we get to experience on the earth by the Lord, who plants joy deep in our hearts as his children. We are not a people who are, who are fundamentally hopeless or aimless. We are actually hopeful. We are joyful because the king, though, though he hasn't come yet in his full power, he has reserved for us joy and happiness, to, to characterize our life as we wait for him. He's scattering joy and gladness along our path. That is wonderful. And it leads to, to the second command from the psalmist in verse 12, which reads, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. We must rejoice in the Lord, and give thanks to his holy name. I agree with the commentator Richard, Rice, Richard Ross who says, giving thanks to the name of the Lord is an encompassing term that just means the Lord's nature and his divine attributes revealed in his word. So we are to rejoice and give thanks to the Lord for, for his nature and all of his glorious attributes. And we're supposed to rejoice as we wait for his coming. So we must rejoice, for the Lord is king. As the great hymn says, Charles Wesley wrote that wonderful hymn, um, Rejoice, the Lord is king. And I read he, he, he wrote it meditating on Philippians 4.4, which reads, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And Wesley noted that Paul wrote this behind prison walls. So not, not the best of situations. And he could proclaim rejoicing in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always, even while he was in chains, in bondage. Because even though it may not seem like it in this age, the Lord is the sovereign king. The Lord is the complete ruler of everything. So in all circumstances, all of us can rejoice in our King, in our God, 
And as this psalm, Psalm 97, proclaims, there is a day that is coming, sometime in the future, when our king will come in glory, he will come in power, and he will make all things right, and he will judge perfectly, and those who are in Christ will rejoice at his judgments. We will, we will praise in his righteousness. And those of us who trust in Christ alone for salvation can anticipate that day with glad rejoicing because the king will deliver us. He will preserve us for all eternity. And we can sing along with the great hymn, Rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord and judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you, we praise you for your word, we praise you for this psalm, and the, the glorious truth contained in it. Lord, we confess you are king, you are king over everything and everyone, and so I ask that you would cause us to orient our lives in accordance with that truth. Help us submit our lives to you, King Jesus. Help us forsake evil. Reveal to us where we are, are trusting in, in idols and, and things that we're giving our life to that aren't you, and cause us to rid those things from our lives. Lord, you are a good, you are a gracious king, and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, the Lord is king, and that is good, and our Lord deserves all worship and praise. So I think it, I think it appropriate that we respond to our king in song, and do as the psalmist tells us here and rejoice in the Lord in our hearts through, through our words as we sing to the Lord. So with reverence hearts to our King, please stand as we sing to the Lord.